This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Trying to get by Benning. Darnell Nurse left it in the corner. Gets up center. Perry scoops. All right, we are back for another episode of the Forever Mighty Podcast. After a Ducks win against the Colorado Avalanche, I don't think if you had told me before this two-game set that the Ducks would come out of two games against one of the best teams in the NHL, that they would get three points out of it and keep both of these games close, a 3-2 overtime loss, which we all thought they probably could have gotten two points out of and deserved it, and then a hard-fought 3-1 win tonight led by John Gibson. I mean, he, he was exceptional in both games, but uh, on a whole nother level in this one. Yeah, I think uh, Gibby played pretty incredible this game, and I think, um, you know, seeing the shot numbers balance out a little bit more in this game in the way that we would expect, I think that kind of explains why Gibson played so well. You know, I don't think they uh, really played well enough in front of him to even limit some of the chances um you know i think they had stretches where they were able to keep him to the outside and stuff like that um but i think overall they really um leaned on gibson this one more than they have in a few other games this is what it's going to be like for most of the season i mean we've talked about it we talked about it in our season preview and over the course of the first few games here and pretty much every one of john gibson's starts if the ducks are going to win games it's going to be, I mean, essentially this game it's 2-1. It's an empty net goal by Hampus Lindholm that makes it 3-1. The Ducks are going to have to win these close one-goal, two-goal games backed by an exceptional performance from John Gibson. That's how they're likely going to win most of their games this season. You know, there'll be the odd few here and there that they, you know, put through an exceptional offensive performance and win by a couple goals, but that's going to be few and far between. You know, we talked about the Ducks being one of those three teams who could really fight for that fourth spot and creep into the playoffs and this is how they're going to do it and you know the the big thing I think the big takeaway from this game here and, and really the start of the season is that John Gibson again he's the key and he's back you know we've been a little worried about you know the Ducks just being completely awful in front of him how that's going to impact him and how it impacted him last season and you, you look at his stone-cold post-game interview where the guy shows no emotion whatsoever uh, after just pitching you know, a 32-save a performance uh, against you know, one of the most high-powered offenses in the league. Like, he's in the zone completely. Yeah, no, you know, he, um, you know, he made that save uh, towards the end of the game where you know, he went all the way across and he kind of you know, used his legs to get over. And, you know, that's the kind of save he makes two years ago. And we're all freaking out because he's <laughs> still kind of got the lingering ghost of hip issues and um, that kind of stuff or hamstring issues, all that stuff. Um, you know, he just, he looks really good. You know, there was, uh, you know, that clip of him, there was like a close-up shot of him after uh, Rantanen had that backhand go right into his chest or his glove and you know you can hear Randon swear on the broadcast and then they cut to Gibby after and Gifty Gibby's just laughing you know what I mean and I think that that for me is the stuff that you want to see from him like he's you know I think he's kind of a cheeky guy as far as you know sometimes he'll give you a little bit extra but 
Um, you know, the stuff as far as body language that you really want to see from him is when he really looks to be having fun. And uh, tonight on his face, you could see he was enjoying himself. So that was nice to see. Yeah. And, and I mean, it's tough to enjoy yourself when you get out shot 33 to 14. But when you're playing the way that John Gibson is and, you know, he's got the support from his teammates, of course. I mean, you look at you know, Lindholm scores the empty netter. The first person he goes to is John Gibson to be like, yeah, that one. You know, the broadcast basically said, hey, you know, he went to him and said that one's for you because of. You know, he kept the Ducks in this one, and you know we'll we'll get to the numerous amount of saves that John Gibson made in this one. But we start off with the pregame here, exact same lineup from the last game against Colorado. Really, no surprise there. Couldn't really see any changes. You know, Milano's on the IR. There's not really too many guys who could check in. I think you know Fowler and Hockenbaugh have looked good. So Hockenbaugh, for at least the time being, has secured his spot in the lineup and. You know, Larson and Walensky, I'm not going to say they've been great, but I'm also not going to say they've been bad. So I don't think they really deserve to slot out there. Uh, it looks like Mahura and Bacchus were the extras in this game because they were scratched. Um, you know, the the one the one downer there is I would have loved to see Mahura play if he was on the roster and, and, and had mm-hmm. the ability to check in tonight. But again, I mean, you look at that performance they put in in the first game against Colorado why change anything right you know they put in a shift everybody played a pretty good game in that first one and they ended up picking out a point uh so again not not super surprising that they come into this one with the exact same lineup yeah um you know i think tonight was a little bit more indicative of kind of what you expect to see from a larson walensky pairing where you know a few times you got to see them you know, uh, use their body and kind of clear guys out of the way or, you know, stand guys up the blue line. You know, they are a couple of misplays. Larson held onto the puck too long and, uh, <clears throat> you know, led to that, that shot on goal. And I think, uh, you know, I think Mahura definitely has more upside um, than Larson does. And so I think there's definitely something to try to mix them in. But like you said, they played well enough last game um, to earn the right to lose the spot you know what i mean and so you know i think if you're the ducks you're looking at you're like yeah that's probably closer to what we're going to get from them the more nights uh you know again fowler and hockenball look good you know fowler had that play where he took himself off sides uh or no that might have been lindholm um but yeah no you know what i mean i think uh i think overall everybody kind of played where you expect them to i think uh you know once again, you can see that Lindholm is the best defenseman on the team by a good amount. And, uh, you know, that trip penalty by Shattenkirk is maybe a little, mm. but, um, yeah, as far as the lineup, I don't think there's anything to change. So, yeah, I mean, the, the interesting thing for me is, you know, Yanni Hackenpah has been so good with Cam Fowler, um, the, the thing is, we just haven't seen a, you know, a big enough sample size for him yet to know if it's for real, right? It, it, it very much could be mm-hmm. because this is a guy who originally got drafted by the St. Louis Blues, didn't really cut it in the NHL, went back to Finland, played there for you know three or four years, and finally made his way back to the NHL. You know, is this guy a top four defenseman? Uh, you know, it's way, way too early to say, but I don't think it's out of the question because if he gels with Cam Fowler and that pairing becomes a reliable pairing for the Ducks, which it looks like it has over three or four games now, Josh Manson doesn't easily check back in there just because he's Josh Manson in the, in the name value and the, and the amount of money he makes. You know, we talked about this on the on, on the last podcast after the Colorado game a couple days ago, you know, if they continue to look good, he's earned that spot in the top four. And it's up to Josh Manson at that point to work his way back in. And, you know, I don't think Kevin Shattenkirk at any point is really going to fall off that top pairing with Hampus Lindholm. Yeah, he's had a couple, you know, bad games. He struggled with penalties in the last two. But, you know, they brought him in to play with Hampus Lindholm. And they have looked good together at times, especially early on in the first few games of this year. So, you know, for, for, Josh Manson at this point, you know, obviously he's watching this and and I'm sure he's excited for the team and and happy that they're doing well. But, you know, his time when he comes back seems like he's going to start on the third pairing, whether that's with Mahura or Larson or, you know, Wilinski or whoever it is. He's going to have to work his way back onto that uh, pairing with Cam Fowler if he wants to be there. Yeah, I mean, I almost think 
um, you know, when he comes back, uh, once he's kind of worked his way back into game shape and stuff, because, you know, he's going to be out for six weeks. That's not a short amount of time. You know, I almost wonder if it's kind of a two-second pair thing, and, you know, they maybe try to put somebody else uh, with Manson, like a Mahura, to maybe try to, um, you know, juice the offense on all the lines. Uh, you know, I think Hawkenpah, if he, you know, if this is for real and he's playing right now at kind of what we can expect for at least the rest of the year, then I think that's a huge boost for Anaheim. I think that gives you another body on the penalty kill. That gives you someone uh, who's willing to block shots. and it's a bigger guy. He can move some people around. Um, but I also think it helps separate Manson and Fowler. And I kind of know I've been harping on this a little bit, but I just, I think they're a bad pair. And I think if you can separate them, it's going to help both of them play better. And I think it's going to improve the quality of the defense overall. Um, you know, so maybe if you're Josh Manson, seeing Hockenpah play so well isn't necessarily the most comforting thing. But if you're Dallas Akins, I think seeing him play well and the prospect of then getting back Manson to put into that top six, you know, because I think Walensky's the easy one to take out. And the question becomes, how do the minutes get divvied up at that point? So I just, I, I think it's a positive overall. And I think it definitely uh, bodes well for maybe the Ducks getting back to being a little bit better on defense like we maybe expected them to be. Yeah, it's been a while since the Ducks could rely on, you know, three pairings on the blue line to be solid. You know, we've at times had, you know, a top four that's looked pretty well and gelled well together on and off throughout a season. I think if you can have Lindholm and Shattenkirk be pretty good almost every night, if you can get Fowler and Hackenpah playing at a level that they're playing at now on a consistent basis, you then have options. You know, Josh Manson is going to be in the lineup. He's going to be, mm -hmm. you know, the fifth defenseman, if you want to call it that. From there, you know, I think Larson probably gets first shot just because, you know, he's played pretty much every game this year and he seems to have the inside track on, on that bottom pairing. But, you know, if things don't go well with Larson and Manson, you have Mahara and Manson, which I think could be an interesting pairing. And you also have Cody Curran, who hasn't played a game yet, whose skill set is a, a little bit similar to Cam Fowler's in terms of him wanting to get up the ice and his skating ability. Uh, and, and he's a little bit more offensive-minded than, say, Jakob Larson is. So you have a few different options. You know, you've got a more defensive... Uh, left shot defenseman in, in Jakob Larson. You've got kind of the two-way guy in Josh Maher and the more offensive-minded guy in Cody Curran. So once Josh Manson does come back, the Ducks do have some options if uh, if Hackenpah or Fowler are, are, are playing well together still. Um, let's uh, let's break into the first period here. The Ducks got on the board early, and it's nice to see Jakob Silverberg get one. Uh, I mean, we, we joked early on in the season, you know, Comtois had 100% of the Ducks' goals for a while there, and then at one point it was come to on Delorier who had 100% of the Ducks goals and it was all coming from the bottom six and I think Cam Fowler chipped in with the odd one but uh man uh you know Jacob Silver getting on the board here it, it just uh, kind of bounces right to him and you know we know that shot is there right and uh you know he ends up firing it past Grubauer for the Ducks one nothing lead yeah I mean you know uh, that's kind of exactly the goal that the Ducks are going to need um to win games this year, frankly, like they're just, you know, we've talked about it ad nauseum at this point, but they don't have the high end skill all the way top to bottom in the lineup uh, to just go out and score beautiful goals the whole time. They're going to have to get weird stuff like that. They're going to have to get, you know, deflections off of the defense and, uh, you know, lucky breaks and things like that. And that's a perfect example of that. You know, he doesn't overthink it. He, uh, he sees it popping and he just goes for it. And uh, he puts it past Grubauer. And, you know, I don't know that there's really a lot Grubauer can do in that situation. Um, you know, it's just kind of a great shot. And, yeah, like you said, like we know he's definitely got the ability to get good shots away. And he can definitely pick his corners, uh, as we've seen in the past. Um, so, you know, for me, that was a huge goal to see. Just because, one, you know, it does get the monkey off of Silverberg's back a little bit. But I think the other thing is that's that's the type of thing that they're going to need to do um, in order to be, uh, you know, consistently in these games. Yeah. And, and I think that that can make the difference. Sorry. Uh, I just think that can, you know, that's the kind of goal that makes a difference against, you know, maybe a Kings team or a Sharks team. Right. Where it's just kind of a, a crap fest. <laughs> and then when you're playing a high end team like this, you know, that maybe gives you a little bit of 
um, it gives you a little bit extra pep in your step. So yeah, and I think the good thing, you know, we know kind of how Jakob Silverberg gets going is he's fairly streaky, but this could be the start of things because usually once he gets the monkey off his back, like you said. He tends to go hot for a few games here, and, and obviously that would be mm-hmm. great for the Ducks right now because they need offense from their top six. You know, their two regulation goals or their two goals that weren't empty an empty net goal by Lindholm were from the top six, from the two top lines. You had Silverberg getting one, and then later on you have uh, Raquel getting one from Getzlaff. That's what the Ducks need is those top two lines to get going. And then every now and then you can get the third line with the kids chipping in and the fourth line chipping in, which we know they will, but... One of these lines, if not both of them, need to get hot if the Ducks are going to get results here. And, you know, you look at the rest of this first period here, it was, you know, the, the, the Ducks goal was pretty much most of their own, or most, if not their only chance in this uh, first period. McKinnon ends up wiring one off the post. Uh, another big save by John Gibson off a of Burakovsky one-timer. McCarr hits the crossbar, had a wide open net. And then later on in the period, he brings another one off the crossbar it bounces right down to the line and john gibson covers it uh really similar to the wild game where kaprizov and i can't remember who else hit the post in the first period but the ducks were, were holding on in that one i mean john gibson has been great and don't get me long get me wrong here but man the, the avalanche have to feel hard done by in that first period hitting three posts and mccarr is literally coming inches away from going in you know you got to be good to be lucky but sometimes you also got to be lucky to, to be good in john gibson's case yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. You know, I think if you're, you know, the Colorado Avalanche, I think you're kind of leaving that game going, look, we generated high quality opportunities. Um, we got good shots on net. We had a goalie who was playing, at, you know, about as good as he could play, make some really big saves. And on top of that, we got a little bad puck luck with some bounces. You know, there's the one shot. I think it's uh second or third period but it goes through his legs and shoots out the other side right like some nights that just goes straight into the back of the net and so i think you know colorado can't feel too bad about it because gibby played as great a game as he was going to play and they still had more than enough chances to score four or five goals so um you know like you said you know uh getting some goals out of the top six was was nice but you know, overall, they really kind of got shut in their own end, especially in that first period. I think it was at one point like 12 to 4 in shots or something like that, and it was it was not good. Yeah, it finishes 13 to 7 abs in the first period. Um, you know, the, the interesting thing for me is uh, the coaching decision by Dallas Aikens to put the Derek Grant line uh, and match them up against the Nathan McKinnon line, and there was a lot of kind of arguments going on on Twitter and, and in our chat to kind of start the, the show tonight and if that was a good decision or not. By uh, and, and if Derek Grant was kind of playing well and matching up well against Nathan McKinnon, I think, you know, you look at the fact that that line for the Avs hit the post three times in the first period and you look at the underlying numbers, you know, Derek Grant was getting caved in. But, you know, the big thing is they didn't get on the board. And I, I think when you look across the entire game, it is an interesting decision. It is a bit of a confusing one because it's usually Adam Henrique or Ryan Getzlaff who's been tasked with shutting down a, an opposing team's top line, especially one as deadly as Nathan McKinnon and, and Mika Rontanen are. But, uh, you know, what do you make of that decision? That's an interesting one for me for, for Dallas Aikens to put them out there. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I uh, Felix Sicard made this point on Twitter tonight where he, he said, you know, playing grant as a hard match against the mckinnon line like it definitely leads to a situation where arguably the ducks worst players are out there against you know uh one of the best lines in hockey but the other thing that it does is it sets up the other lines to maybe have a chance to be a little bit more productive going against lesser talent you know it's almost like uh you're just going to sacrifice that line because whoever goes out there is going to get eaten alive and so if maybe you can see if because I, I kind of felt whenever they were out there, I also saw Lindholm and Shattenkirk. And so I felt like that was kind of uh, covering the bases there a little bit and trying to insulate them. And then, uh, you know, hoping that the other guys make the most of the opportunities that they can. You know, it's certainly high risk, high reward. And tonight it paid off. But I think, like you said, it pays off because Gibby was good and they hit more posts than they're probably going to on most nights. So I'm not hundred percent sure that's something that the, 
you know, the Ducks want to rely on. Uh, but it worked out well enough for them tonight, so I guess that's kind of all you're looking at. Yeah, and, you know, maybe it's not the the decision by Aikens that we see in every game where Derek Grant is now – you know, the go-to shutdown guy for uh, Dallas Aikens. It's not the worst thing in the world. I think he is, a, you know, a great player, and I think he plays, a you know, an important role for the Ducks. I'm just not sure on a nightly basis against every team's top line you want to make that decision and have Grant, Rowney, and Delorier playing against them. I, I mean, on paper, that looks like a huge mismatch, mismatch, and it really is. I mean, the speed of Nathan McKinnon, mm-hmm. I'm not sure you want um, Delorier and Rowney to have to deal with that, especially then you add... Mika Ronson into that line, and I know Burakovsky's been skating there, but Landis Cog made a, a, a couple of appearances on that line where it was the kind of old-school tri- trio for the Avs. So, you know, we'll see where they go in the next game here and if Derek Grant gets those mass- matchups. But, hey, you know, you got to give Dallas Aikens credit. It, it worked for him tonight, so that's kind of the main point there. Um, heading to the second period, John Gibson, of course, makes another opens the period with another great save uh, on Devin Taves' one-timer. I mean, he was God. just the amount of save, the, the amount of ridiculous saves. I mean, John Gibson makes these saves look easier than they really are, just because of his positioning and and you know his ability to read the play. Uh, there was a couple saves he, he kind of dove across and robbed McKinnon at one point. This one time around Devin Taves, like there are saves that a normal netminder would be diving across the net to make that save, and tonight John Gibson's positioning was just on point. Yeah, no. Um, uh, yeah, I think, um, sorry, I was just kind of thinking about the Delorier thing, and I think part of that also is that that line's really the only line the Ducks have left with any size. Yeah, pretty much. And I much. wonder if that was part of it. Um, but no, yeah, that Devin Taves, you know, the the broadcast in Anaheim mentioned it a bunch of times tonight that what the Ducks were really trying to do was cut across, cut out those cross-ice uh, passes and you know you see exactly what Devin Taves who's not even you know really a, an offensive guy uh he gets a great shot off and Gibby's just in position by the time the puck gets to him and you know that's just a sign of how well he's playing and how well he's reading the game um and I guess if anybody's going to take that shot you're kind of hoping it's Taves over McCarr but I don't know that that's really something you're excited about giving up and uh yeah, no, I think that was just kind of my thing, you know. Yeah, it it's you know it, it's just one of those things where I, I think you know John Gibson was on his game in this one, and you know that's like we've already said multiple times in the show so far already that you know that's one of the reasons the Ducks held on here. But I think they took advantage of their opportunities, and and you look at obviously Silverberg cashing in on really one of maybe two high quality chances the Ducks had in the first period, and then you look in the second, you know they're main opportunity in the second period they cashed in on it and of course it's Ryan Getzlaff making things happen um, I think I saw somebody tweet out like a Hall of Fame type pass which is what we're used to seeing from Ryan Getzlaff even at this point in his career and he finds Raquel and you know we talked about Jakob Silverberg getting the monkey off his back this is a big game also for Ricard Raquel to get his first of the season and hopefully get going here too um, you know the Ducks are going to need both of them and th- these two guys are what you would expect to be the Ducks top two goal scores right in Silverberg and Raquel so both of them kind of getting on the board for the first time uh in the season in this game is I think huge for the Ducks going forward especially building that confidence and moving into the next game yeah you know I mean I think what you see there is a moment of individual brilliance in Ryan Getzloff's play and like I don't want to sound you know a little I don't want to sound entirely too fanboy but I mean those are the types of plays that make Getzloff a special player. And that's something that we as Anaheim fans have been very spoiled by, you know, over the last 12, 13 years, um, as far as what he's capable of. Uh, you know, he makes that perfect pass and Raquel's the guy you want there, right? He he just gets the shot off and it uh it beats Grubauer. You know, and I don't know that that's on Grubauer. You know, the two goals that Grubauer gives up, I'm not a hundred percent sure what you want him to do there. Um, you know, and I think that goes to really the kind of looks, like I said earlier, that Anaheim's going to need to generate either those great one-time opportunities off of individual moments of brilliance, which, you know, there aren't really a ton of guys on that lineup who are capable of making that play. And then the Silverberg goal, which is just, 
you catch a lucky break, you get a shot off, and you see what happens. Um, you know, I think I've definitely been happy to see Getzloff uh, look as as strong as he has this year. You know, I know it's still early, but I, I really kind of have been surprised by how good he's looked early, not from a skill perspective, but from a physical perspective. You know, he's still the slowest guy on the ice, but, you know, he's picking his angles a little bit better. He's finishing his checks. He's he's really engaged, and I think seeing him be engaged all across the ice is one of the things that bodes well for Anaheim because we know he's always going to be looking for that next-level pass like that to try and get an opportunity for somebody. So, you know, I think as much as it was great for Raquel to get his goal, I think it's it's a great sign that Getzlov is still, you know, making those passes and reading the game that way and having someone like Raquel who hopefully, uh, you know, can kind of find his footing here is, is very promising. Yeah, and and I think the, the important thing too is when we looked at Corey Perry and, and kind of his decline and when his legs went, I mean, the speed was really never a, a huge part of Corey Perry's game, but when his legs really went, his game went out the window. And I think, you know, Ryan Getzlaff, like you said, he's, you know, not anywhere near the fastest player on the ice, but he's still having a significant impact despite that. You know, he's not letting that lack of speed hurt him and hurt, you know, the, his team play and hurt his game by any means. I mean, he looks as good as he has over the last couple seasons here through the first six games. And that's what the Ducks need. You know, he's reworked his game and he's changed it up a bit where he's kind of playing a bit more of a 2C, 3C role where he's being a physical player. And obviously he has that ability to make those plays and make those passes. So he's going to pick up points every now and then. But I think, you know, as a good captain, he has taken on a new role for this team and he's doing it to the best of his ability. And I think that's all you can ask for, you know, if you're Dallas Akins and the coaching staff is that Ryan Getzlaff on a nightly basis is going to put in a shift and he's going to get things done. And when he has the puck on his stick, like tonight, he's going to make things happen. And I think that's the you know a big a big positive for the Ducks going forward. Obviously, Ryan Ketzlaff's contract expires at the end of this season, but you know if he can continue to play like this across fifty six games, you know I think I think the Ducks are going to re-sign him no matter what. But I think they're a bit more comfortable about bringing him back, knowing that he can still you know have an impact and and, and you know have a, a successful season despite you know, being on the wrong side of 30 right now. Yeah, I think the point you made about the legs going with him and Perry is really interesting, right? Because I think the thing about uh, Perry is, is, you know, Perry needs his legs to get to his spots to score goals. And that's not what Getzloff needs. You know, Getzloff doesn't move quickly. Uh, you know, he's very sudden with his passes or his shooting. Um, but more than anything, he uses his frames to kind of box guys out and keep them on his back and create space that way. You know, his, uh, his skating is important in so much as everyone needs to know how to skate to play hockey. But I think, um, you know, I don't think his speed has ever been a, a huge issue because he sees, uh, the game so well and because he tends to play, uh, below the faceoff dots, you know, and kind of let his guys come to him and try to find and create alleys and open spaces for them to get onto. You know, I think having a guy like Jones on his lane who just works is great. And then I think having Raquel, who we know is a capable finisher when he's kind of finding his groove, uh, you know, I think that can definitely be a positive thing for Anaheim going forward. Yeah, and we move into the third period here, and, and this is where you know we knew Colorado was going to make a push, and, and they made a push here in the third period. And it's a late one, but McKinnon's shot isn't handled by Gibson. Probably the only mistake, if you want to call it that, that he made all game, where he kind of just fumbles the rebound a bit, and Mika Rontanen isn't picked up, and he's probably the last guy on the ice that you don't want to have uh, left open in front of the net, and he ends up burying the rebound to cut the lead to two to one. But ultimately the ducks get out of this. Thanks to John Gibson and an empty net goal from Hampus Lindholm seal a three, one win over the abs. Like I said, at the beginning of the show, three points out of a possible four from the two game stand against Colorado. The ducks record now sits at two, two and two. I can't remember what we, we made some predictions at the beginning of the uh, the year in our season preview of how the ducks would start. I think in their first 10 games I think it was and mm -hmm. you know, I think I had them at maybe five wins I think you might have had them at was it four wins I had them at four wins yeah uh, you know through six they've got two 
and they've got some easier matchups if you want to call that. I think they got Arizona coming up next, which is not an easy matchup by any means, but on paper, you know, it's it's a lot easier matchup than it is going against Colorado and Nathan McKinnon. So there's winnable games coming up, and and I think you know if you had to told me through the first six the Ducks are two two and two, I think I would take that. I think that's a, a pretty good start to the season for them. Yeah, I definitely think you're fine with that. You know, um, like you said, that McKinnon goal, I don't think that's Gibby's fault at all. I think that's a little bit of a breakdown in coverage. And, you know, Ratman's on his own and he makes a play and that's just simple as that. You know what I mean? Like at the end of the day, like great players make great plays and that's pretty much what that was. And, you know, he's a big, strong guy around the net and he's able to get there and there's no one around. So it doesn't even matter that he's you know, a bigger guy as far as being around the net. But, you know, that's the kind of stuff I think that's a little bit frustrating and simultaneously inevitable. And I feel like, you know, those are kind of the moments that kind of help keep you grounded in a game like this where you go, oh, yeah, they're still capable of breakdowns like that. And when they're playing elite teams, they're going to make them pay like that. Um, But, you know, that Lindholm... Uh, empty netter was great to see. Like you said, he goes right to Gibby and he goes, you know, thanks for <laughs> saving our ass tonight. And uh, so, yeah, I think that's, you know, I, I think that third period showed you a little bit more of what you were expecting the game to look like as far as them getting kind of run around a little bit. Um, you know, I think the thing for me that really kind of left a little bit of a sour taste in my mouth was that power play. I I didn't like seeing them basically just try to kill two minutes with a man advantage. Um, I would have liked to see them be a little bit more aggressive. I think putting Lindholm out there while understandable is a mistake, because if for no other reason, I don't know that you want him on the ice any more than he has to be. And a power play is one of the times where you can, you know, justifiably take him off the ice and know there are better options. Um, You know, I think to see them really just kind of, pack it in for two minutes was really disconcerting and especially for a a team that i think still doesn't have a power play goal like you'd like to see them just it's not like they don't need the reps you know what i mean this isn't like they're they're clicking at 30 percent and they know that they've got it this is a team that desperately needs power play help and i think not taking every opportunity in real games to score power play goals is uh, is pretty brutal um so I think that for me did leave a sour taste in my mouth. Oh my God, sour taste in my <laughs> mouth. But you know, at the end of the day, they won the game, and that's really all you can ask for. Um, you know, they made enough mistakes to keep it fun and interesting, but they didn't make so many that they gave it away. Yeah, I, I think what well, you look at that that third period is. I mean, John Gibson made about three game-saving stops, but other than that, like I think the the Ducks did not a great job, but an okay job of closing out the game. They they didn't give up. You know, they didn't make any bad turnovers. They didn't give up any, you know, really, really bad chances because of defense, you know, poor defensive coverage. I, I think it was, you know, a hard-fought closeout to the third period. And, and at some point, we knew that McKinnon and Ronton were going to break through. Uh, you know, as good as John Gibson was, I mean, those two are just, you know, some of the top players in this league, and they're not going to go down easy. But, you know, the one thing I do agree with you is that power play. I, I think the problem with me is it's not so much they were kind of killing the clock because I think that's part of it. It's almost like they are now afraid they're going to give up a shorthanded goal at this point. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they, they kind of play, and, and that's every power play they have. There's almost this fear that if they overcommit and they try and be you know too creative that it's going to result in an odd man rush the other way and the puck's going to be in the back of their net. And we've seen some shorthanded goals against so far this season, we've seen some great shorthanded saves by John Gibson and Ryan Miller so far this year. And and that's not how you want to run a power play. You don't want to go out there afraid that you're going to concede. I mean, that's not the point of a power play. The point is you have a man advantage. You're going out there to put your team in a good position and put the puck in the back of the net. And, you know, the, the Ducks power play is never going to get better if they're all going out there with that fear that they could concede shorthanded. It, you, at that point, no matter what system you have set up, no matter what personnel you have out there, it's never going to change if that mentality is in place. The economy is made up of real people doing real stuff, and it affects everything, which you obviously know since you're a real person doing real stuff. 
Marketplace is here to help you get smart about everything beyond the what of the day's business and economic news. We dig into the how and the why with the real people driving our economy. From big tech and interest rates to small businesses and what's happening at the Fed, Marketplace breaks it all down so you don't have to. Listen to Marketplace wherever you get your podcasts. Some cars are comfy on the inside but don't have power on the outside. And some cars have the horsepower but none of the comfort. I used to think there weren't any cars that were the total package. But that all changed when I got my Honda SUV. It's rugged and sophisticated. And right now, Honda has deals on the entire Honda SUV lineup. CRV, HRV, Pilot, Passport, you name it. So if you're looking for a car that's the total package, the only place you'll find it is at your local Honda dealer. Hurry before they're all gone. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, like you said, I don't think, you know, the power play is a place where you want your guys feeling timid, especially with a team that's going to so noticeably um, and predictably struggle to score goals this year. Um, I don't think you want to be timid. I don't think you want your players being timid. And I'm, you know, frankly, I don't know that this isn't one of the things that I look at Aikens as being in charge of. You know what I mean? Um, You know, I think for me, it's definitely one of those things where it's like, dude, you're the coach. They're going to take away the lessons you want them to take away from. And if, you know, the end of a third period, you're more, it's more important for you that you not give up a shorty. Like, I don't know what to tell you. Like, I just don't think that's, especially this early in the season, I don't really think you want to be sending that kind of message to your players, especially when we know that the power play is going to need to see significant improvement. I don't know that it's a great idea to undermine your players' confidence so quickly. Yeah, and you know what? We we might as well move on to the post-game topics now, and we discussed this uh, <coughs> yesterday. Would have, I guess it would have been, yeah, it would have been yesterday on Pucks and Bruce on our Patreon where we talked about the resolution to the Pierre-Luc Dubois saga. This will be the first time we're covering it uh, live on the regular show here. Uh, but as you know, and I'm sure as you're all aware at this point, the Ducks were one of three finalists to work out a trade for Pierre-Luc Dubois. It was Winnipeg, Montreal, and Anaheim who were really in the mix. Ultimately, it's the Jets who come out the winners of the Pierre-Luc Dubois sweepstakes. They send Patrick Laine and Jack Roslovich, who's a Columbus native, to the Blue Jackets for Pierre-Luc Dubois in a third-round pick. Uh, you know what? It's it's disappointing. I mean, we, you know, unoptimistically or pessimistically called this on the last show where we said, you know, the Ducks always kind of get down to the wire with some of these trades, but they never get it done. You look at three, really, in the last year here where they got close to Justin Falk. They didn't get him. He ended up going to St. Louis, which maybe was a blessing in disguise. But still, you know, they, they got down to the wire in a trade, and, and they couldn't pull the trigger. They explored Casper Kapanen, were one of the finalists on that one, ultimately didn't get that deal done. You know, the price for him was pretty high. So, again, maybe a blessing in this in disguise. And then here with Pierre-Luc Dubois, one of three finalists, and they just can't, you just can't compete with that offer. You know, Winnipeg is looking to trade Patrick Laine. He's a superstar in this league. The Ducks, I think, value-wise, could put up a pretty similar deal, you know, with Raquel, Steele, and a first-round pick. I think the first-round pick offsets maybe the difference in uh, Patrick Laine over Raquel and Steele, but you're not getting that superstar. And I think that's what Columbus wanted at the end of the day was if they're going to get rid of a superstar, they want one in return. Yeah, and, you know, full credit to Columbus. Like, you know, you look at that roster and you look at that team and, you know, the first question you have to ask yourself is how are they going to score goals? Well, a big part of that was Pierre-Luc Dubois. And, you know, even he wasn't a 30-goal scorer on that team. So now if they're... You know, they're going to move out from one of their best guys like they got to get they got to get something back. And I think, you know, we had talked about it in so much as um, line a as a talent thing being something that the Ducks just couldn't match. And it was going to be about contract extensions and personality fit. And, you know, obviously they felt uh, comfortable with all of that. And so they made the deal. You know, I, I think the Justin Falk one is a blessing in disguise. I think the Kappen one, as far as, you know, they wanted uh the Dreesdale pick which wasn't going to happen and you know Kapanen just he's not that quality of player you know I think you can say that both of those are definitely ones where it might be better that the Ducks didn't get that trade but I do think it's it's interesting that the Ducks 
seem to so clearly be in buying mode. You know, I don't think we've heard about a fallen trade that's them selling. Yeah, um, we, we, we've never really heard like, you know, we, we haven't heard what was involved in this Dubois trade. I mean, it's it's heavily speculated that Raquel probably would have been part of it because it just makes sense in terms of, you know, his contract, the term he has left and, and his ability as a player. But yeah, we, we you don't really hear things on the other side where you know all the ducks were trying to move Lindholm and it just didn't work or a deal fell apart or the the offer wasn't that high. The ducks always seem to be in on trying to buy players and it's a mix too. That's the weird thing is you know sometimes like Dubois and Kapanen, it's young players who have some term and and could be you know an, an asset to your team now and in the future. And then with the Falk deal, it's you know, it, it was before Shattenkirk got signed, so I know there was a need for a right-shot defenseman, but you're getting a guy who's, you know, north of 30, coming in at, at uh, you know, a long-term with a, a big value on his contract. It's, you know, it's a mixed bag from Bob Murray. And we heard in, in the preseason and, and his comments where he said this is a win-now team, which I think a lot of us kind of laughed at and said there's no way, you know, this is a win-now team the way they're structured. Right. But when you look at him going out there and being in on some of these deals and trying to be a buyer, you know, there is a, a win-now aspect to that type of behavior from Bob Murray. And, you know, I, I, again, like I said, I mean, you know, the Casperi Kaepernick and the Justin Falk deals may be blessings in disguise, but it becomes a trend with Anaheim that we've seen over the last few years now that they kind of get down to a wire on a lot of these deals, but none of them get closed. Yeah, you know, and I think that's one of the most notable points of differentiation between Brian Burke and Bob Murray. You know, Brian Burke was, all right, well, we're going to have this conversation until you agree to give me what I want, and we're going to figure out what has to be in this. You know, Bob Murray seems to be much more of, well, maybe I will, maybe I won't, and uh, I don't know if I want to do that and, uh, you know, heaving in the hole and not really putting it over the line. You know, we talked about it this weekend. They missed on Pacioretty because they didn't want to put steel in the deal. And it's hard to, hard to look at that and not think that wouldn't have been a clear win for the Ducks. Um, you know, as much as they do need center depth, I think they need goals more. And it would have been nice to have goals uh, when... Uh, you know, Getzloff was still closer to 30 than 40. Um, I, you know, I think it's an interesting thing to look at, you know, as far as what happens now, right, and what this means and what kind of things we can learn from it. I think, you know, we kind of talked about this a little bit before the show, and it's what is the fallout for this? You know, how does this affect the locker room? How does this affect uh, the plans? Like, does this – like, what do you think about that? Like, do you think this gives us any – insight into what we can expect the rest of the year or yeah it, it's it's such an interesting situation because you know do i think the ducks are buyers because strictly because they're in on pierre-luc dubois i don't think that means you know now they're going to shift their focus to somebody else who's available right. i think this was a unique situation that you don't have a player of this caliber and this potential become available that often and you know you look you looked at the the responses when this first came out there was you know 25 teams or so that were interested and then eventually mm-hmm. it came down to you know three or four who had strong offers and the, and the ducks were a part of it um you know i i don't i really don't know where this goes from here i think it shows the ducks are willing to to trade players if a deal makes sense if it's a player they really want so i think you know like every year bob murray's always going to be looking for you know that opportunity to become available but I don't think it necessarily means the Ducks are going to be pushing for a trade because they missed out on Pierre-Luc Dubois. Like now they're going to go pursue a secondary option or they had, you know, other options that if they missed out on Dubois, this is their target. I don't necessarily think that's the direction they're going to go. I think this was a unique opportunity that they had to be involved in. They threw their hat in the ring and it just so happened that, you know, their offer was one of the top three offers that Columbus was considering. But, you know, it's a tough one. We got a question in the chat that said, you know, is this a knock on Murray that he can't swing these trades. And, and it's really hard to judge that because, you know, we don't mm-hmm. know what he was offering and we don't know what he was not willing to offer. And, and you really don't hear much after these trades don't happen. And at the end of the day, only one GM is going to get this done. You know, Habs fans, I'm sure, are upset mm-hmm. that they couldn't swing this deal. But for them, it was rumored that Nick Suzuki wanted to be, uh, that Columbus wanted Nick Suzuki to be a part of that. And I think if you're Montreal, you're probably happy 
with the way Nick Suzuki's playing right now, and then that deal didn't go through. And you know, for us, if it was if it meant Trevor Zegers involved is involved, I think you know the majority of Ducks fans right now would be happy that that deal didn't go through if it was going to include Trevor Zegers. I, you know, I I don't want to speculate, but I'm sure if the Ducks landed Pierre Dubois and it meant giving up Trevor Zegers, that would not sit well with the fan base. You know, you're getting an exceptional player in Pierre Dubois, but for a lot of people, that potential of what Zegris could hold, I think, you know, you'd be getting bad flashbacks of, of losing Shea Theodore, and I know it's not a similar situation, but that's what you get is, you know, when you're trading a prospect like that, you're like, oh, man, like, what if this guy turns out to be the real deal? And, you know, I, I think, again, the, the, the Ducks clearly weren't willing to move those guys, uh, and at the end of the day, man, it, it's so hard to, to beat that offer. I mean, mm-hmm. Patrick Laine is an exceptional player and he fits exactly what Columbus was looking for. So I give Bob Murray credit for getting down to the wire and at least producing a strong enough offer that he was one of those remaining teams. I would just love to know what that was and what he's willing to, to kind of trade to get a player like that. Yeah. And I think, um, I think to a degree, you know, the one thing that happened here that fell into Winnipeg's lap is that they also had a, clear top line talent who didn't want to be there anymore you know so they weren't trading away a promising young forward that they had hoped to be part of the team for 10 years they were trading a guy who had explicitly told them he didn't want to be there anymore and had been in the rumor mill for god what is this, the third year of him yep. you know being rumored to be on the block and i i do think that gives them a huge advantage and you know, like you said, like there's really no way to know for sure until you hear whatever the real offers were and, you know, what the sticking points were. Um, but, you know, I'll say as someone, you know, as a basketball fan, like I, you know, you always hear about the Boston Bruins or uh, sorry, the Boston Celtics being in all these trades for all these guys and never getting it. You know, they were in on Paul George and didn't get him. They were in on Kawhi and didn't get him. They were in on Jimmy Butler and didn't get him. And like, you know, like it's kind of okay for them because they've got such great young talent. But at a certain point, I do think it becomes an issue that, you know, you're always the bridesmaid, never the bride on these kinds of uh, deals. So I think it's definitely something that as far as like, is it a knock on him? I definitely think it's concerning. And I do think at a certain point it becomes an issue. Um, but I also do think it's encouraging to know that Bob Murray is sticking his foot in the water a little bit and trying to see what he can do to help improve the team. Yeah, and, and I think it's disappointing for for Anaheim because it, it is such a unique situation. It, it just so happens that you know players like Patrick Laine don't become available that often, if ever. You know, a player who scores thirty plus in his first three seasons and probably could have hit four if he had played a few more games last year before the season got shut down. You know, four straight 30-plus goal seasons to start your career, that's rare territory. Uh, You know, that's one of the the top, top finishers in this league. The only reason he was available is because he asked for a trade out of Winnipeg. And, you know, know, if that doesn't happen, does Anaheim get this deal done? You know, we'll never know if they were, you know, second-best offer or if they are in front of Montreal's offer or what. But it's just, it's kind of an unlucky situation at that point that, you know, that it just so happens that this player was available and this deal makes sense for both teams. And, you know, if you're Winnipeg, you've got a 30-plus goal scorer with 40-plus potential and Kyle Connor already. You know Mark Shifley can hit 25 to 30. You know Blake Wheeler has that potential. Nick Ehlers can be 20-plus. So as good as Patrick Laine is, he's almost surplus to requirements on that team. And then, you know, you can bring in a guy like Pierre-Luc Dubois. Maybe you lose out on the 10 extra goals that you get from Patrick Laine, but you get a little bit more of a, a responsible center who can now give you a one-two punch of Shifley and Dubois, and you can move Statsney down to that third line. And all of a sudden, you've got maybe the best center depth in terms of the top three lines in that entire division. And, and, oh, absolutely. And, 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 you know, you're up there in terms of league center depth when you get to that point as well. I mean, those are three guys that I think any team would love to have, and especially Shifley and Dubois. So it's just one of those unique situations at that point where, you know, I, I think this one is hard to knock Bob Murray on because it, it's so impossible really to beat that offer in, in kind of that situation, right? So it's a tough one. Yeah, I think – 
you know, I think if you wanted to look at a way to to be critical of Bob Murray in this sense, I think the one thing that you could look at is say that this is a, you know, three degrees removed result of him maybe not being as aggressive, uh, selling off older players, uh, trading away older players uh, over the last couple of years. You got to wonder, you know, if Anaheim has a couple extra picks and a couple extra prospects, uh, you know, I mean, how much different does it look if we don't only really have two first round picks, um, you know, two high first round picks uh, over the last couple of years? You know, I think, uh, you know, if it's not Zegris or Bust, I think maybe you can look at it and go, oh, well, they got this guy they drafted 12 two years ago or they got this guy or, you know, maybe they have a couple extra picks. And then on top of that, you can use that to sweeten the deal and give, you know, Columbus the more win-now assets that they need while also helping, you know, recoup the fact that they are trading away a 22-year-old number one center. Um, you know, so I think it would be definitely be fair to look at Bob Murray's failure to, you know, accurately assess the quality of the roster and to not have accrued more picks and prospects uh, over the last couple years, you know, because we've talked about it before, like the real, the, the big benefit of having picks and prospects is you can either trade them for players or you can just take players, you know, and having both options or being able to do both things is huge. So, you know, I think if you wanted to knock Bob Murray for one thing, I think that's certainly a fair way to look at it and to be critical of him from that extent. Um, but I don't know how you necessarily feel about that, but yeah, for, for me, it'd be interesting to see the direction the Ducks take at this point. I mean, I mean, like we said, the Dubois situation is a bit of a unique situation, and it doesn't necessarily mean the Ducks are buyers at this point in time. But mm. you know, sitting at two, two, and two, a win now mentality from Bob Murray, I think it'll be really interesting to see you know what their record is come when you get a little bit closer to trade deadline and what direction the Ducks take this year. I think a lot of us would assume that they're sellers, and they probably should be sellers no matter what position they are in to kind of accelerate this rebuild and, and add to the top prospects you have already in Zegris and Drysdale. But I, you know, we, I really don't know which direction Bob Murray is going to take this in because I, I think you know he would hope that if the Ducks are in that playoff hunt at that spot and within a few points or sitting in that fourth spot at that point in time he might consider them buyers and that's not necessarily going at meaning going out and getting a rental and giving up uh, prospects or picks to get that rental but maybe that's when you explore you know another trade to get you know a younger player with term that can help you this year and help you for that playoff push but also still be a part of this kind of rebuild and and this transition to the future so I'm really interested to see which way he takes it. I mean, obviously, as it always is, it, it's a lot on performance and how the Ducks are doing at that point in time. But there really is no clear direction at this point. You know, you, know, you can make an argument for the Ducks being buyers or sellers. I yeah, I mean, I think it's a little harder to make the buying argument uh, unless you are you know talking about 23, 24 years old and younger. Um, you know, I think really the only thing that would make me kind of okay with some level of, you know, going out and being a buyer on the market, I think is if Zegris comes up and is an impact player kind of right away, you know, if he comes up and all of a sudden you've got someone who can be a different maker, who can be a difference maker, who can be dynamic on the ice, who really gives you that, um, that extra bit of creativity and offense, then maybe it's a different situation, right? But looking at the roster as of now, like, I don't know where you see the upside on this roster that says I should start going out and getting guys in their, you know, mid to late 20s, let alone guys in their 30s. Um, you know, so I think for me, it's much easier to make the argument for the Ducks being a seller, but I think you're absolutely right. There's no way for us to know what Bob Murray's going to do because, you know, he seems to be walking the line. You know, he hasn't seemed to want to commit to a direction at all, ever. So Yeah, I think that's an important part of it is, I mean, if Trevor Zegras comes in and steals a roster spot, he essentially eliminates somebody 
from a spot that they have at this point in time. And, and not everybody can go onto that taxi squad freely without either having to pass through waivers at that point. And, you know, I think that could lead to a point where if he does come up and, and plays exceptionally well and earns that spot, that the Ducks are kind of forced into making a move. And that's not a bad thing. You know, when we say they're forced into making a move, you know, that's making a move because Zegris has come in and been so good. And now you can move right. – you know, another asset out to get help somewhere else. So I think at the end of the day, I mean, we, we talked about this in our season preview that, you know, a few of these are, the few of these guys are gone uh, come trade deadline or at least at the draft or at some point. I, I I think you've got so many young players pushing for roster spots right now and, and you're you're kind of in that middle part of this rebuild right now where you're trying to stock up and on as many top prospects as you can to add to, you know, a, a really top-end talent pool that starts with Zegris and Drysdale. So we'll see. Uh, it, it, it's interesting. I, I think, you know, with an AHL season and a schedule set now, well, well we kind of know when we're going to see Zegris. We, we have a little bit of a timeline for, mm-hmm. you know, how many you know, games he can get under his belt in the AHL and maybe project that to when he could get into the lineup for the Ducks. And, you know, again, a lot of that is, is based on his production and, and barring any injuries that Anaheim might have. But, you can start to build out a timeline of how this season might play out and when potential moves might be made, depending on how well he does. So it'll be interesting to see because I think, you know, other than Zegers, there there are some talented players down in San Diego, some young players who could also push for a roster spot if they're playing well. So I think when you look at guys like Terry and Raquel and, you know, uh, Max Jones and Maxim Comtois, I think, you know, they have to play well if they want to keep their roster spot. I don't think anybody's roster spot is really safe at this point. And I'm sure Bob Murray has made that clear. We've heard that in comments from him. Like there's really nobody untouchable on this team at this point in time. And you know, that, that level of competitiveness is going to show. Yeah. I, you know, I think you're right. I think, you know, it's pretty much Gibby and Lindholm and that's about it. As far as everybody who's, who's locked in, um, you know, but I think it's it's definitely fair to, you know, I, you know, yeah, like I don't want to undersell like some of the Sam Colangelos or Braden Tracy's or Jacob Perros and, you know, even Lakeham or my beloved young man uh, Hunter Drew. Like, I think um, you know, there's definitely some optimism in the system as far as if guys kind of hit their stride. But I think what you can see is a lack of assumed high-end talent right like there's always going to be third and fourth round guys that come good uh what you what you want is to get a little bit better higher up you know what i mean i don't think the ducks feel like they have guys who are going to be guaranteed top six outside of maybe perot is the last guy drafted that you look at being that way um as far as just having that kind of elite release so, yeah, you know, I don't I think you're right. I don't think really anybody maybe Steele is the one who's going to get the longest leash out of the three of them. Um, but I definitely think Jones and Terry are on somewhat of a short leash as far as needing to fulfill the expectation and role that this team has of them, whatever that may be. Um, and if they're able to do that, great. But if not, they could be, you know, in trades. I mean, we saw it last year with Kasha and Richie who weren't old by any stretch of the imagination. And it was just like, yeah, no, this is, this is what we need to do to move on. So, you know, I think you're right. I don't think anybody in the roster's really got a set spot. And I think, you know, (laughs) I mean, it's silly to say, but like the next 50 games are going to be pretty crucial as far as what everything looks like uh, this time next year. Yeah, and I think that transitions perfectly into our our fan questions tonight. We got a question from Dave uh, that is revolving kind of around trades and and some of the players you just mentioned. Um, He said, Terry had another tough night tonight. How many tough games before he is either on the taxi squad or, you know, at risk of being shipped out to another team? Um, uh, you know, I think the truth is, is it's probably not as much, uh, it's probably more games than we would think. You know, I think Milano being on IR really affects that. I think if Milano was healthy, um, I think we could probably expect to see him on the bench for two or three games this week. Um, but without there really being anybody else who can provide a level of dynamic offensive, you know, talent and, you know, I don't. I don't think Terry's like 
you know, a high-end guy, but I think he's definitely got a little bit more offense in his game than some of the other guys, and he's definitely got more offense in his game than Backus. You know, I don't know who else is in the waiting that you bring up. You know, so I, I do think by a, a good stroke of luck, Terry's got a bit of time now to kind of find his footing and figure it out. Yeah, and, and you know, for, for me, I, I don't necessarily think you have to trade him at this point. I don't think the Ducks, even with bad performances, would be pressured into trading him. I think the first scenario is a little bit more likely that he might get a few games on the taxi squad and essentially be mm-hmm. healthy scratched so that, you know, it can make a point here. Um I believe, and I'd have to double-check with Terry's new contract, I think he has to pass the waivers now. I don't think he's waiver-exempt anymore, so that creates a little bit of a interesting situation if that's the case. But, yeah, I, I think I think the Ducks would not be pressured into trading him at this point. I mean, if there was interest in him, I think they're listening. But it's not one of those situations where you're actively searching to move this guy out and sell low on him. Because I think mm-hmm. the Ducks, I mean, the, clearly right. the Ducks still value him and they're, they're playing him on a nightly basis and even through the struggles he really hasn't lost his spot through the first six games here so there is some optimism among the Ducks coaching staff and, and management that they think this guy is going to figure it out and they like what he brings to the lineup on a, on a nightly basis so you know I, I don't think there's necessarily a short leash for Troy Terry but he is one of those guys that like you said if, if the production isn't there that the Ducks are listening and if there is a team interested I think that's where we really start to th- see things develop. I don't think it's a, a situation where the Ducks are alerting the other GMs in the league saying, hey, you know, this guy's available. He's not playing right now. Come get him. Right, yeah. No, I definitely think you're right. I think most likely, you know, for me, I do think he is a a second name in a trade. Um, but I, I definitely, you know, like I don't think they're moving him out for a second-round pick. But I definitely think if it's someone and Terry for some a player that the Ducks want, I definitely think that can happen. Um, so, yeah, you know, I think, but you know, kind of like I said a minute ago, like I, I do think that a big boost to him is how limited uh, in forward talent the Ducks are right now. You know, and I do think you know they wanted to send him down at the end of last season to try to lead the charge in San Diego and be a big part of that group leading the team to through the playoffs so they definitely expect big things from him to some degree um so i I am curious to see where the line is for when they feel like they have to sit him down yeah and and we'll see and and, and honestly i'd imagine that they go into tuesday's game with probably the same lineup as tonight maybe one change if any um but at this point i mean you know, why why fix was not broken uh, i mean the ducks have looked good in their last two games they're probably their best two games of the season so far where they've played it a pretty complete game despite again you know being outshot 33 to 14 is never good and a lot of this was you know <laughs> yeah a lot of this was on john gibson tonight but the ducks still they have played uh you know some pretty good games here against a, a tough opponent but we're gonna wrap up the show here uh, we'll be back on tuesday it's a 9 p.m. start against the Arizona Coyotes. It's a road game. Uh, so we'll be live 15 to 20 minutes after that game. And then we'll also be live after the Arizona Coyotes game on Thursday, which starts at the same time. And then we wrap up that week with a back-to-back Saturday-Sunday matchup. So we will be seeing Ryan Miller uh, against the St. Louis Blues. So four games in the next, so I guess it be four games in six nights because the Ducks have Monday off. So that's going to be a tough stretch. Uh, you know, Arizona is probably the easiest matchup of the two, but it's it's going to be an interesting week for the Ducks. I mean, Arizona is going to be one of those teams that we expect to be fighting with for that fourth and final playoff spot. And St. Louis is one of the premier teams of this division. So it's uh, a tough week for the Ducks ahead. All right, here it is, Eddie. I got a question for you. How many total goals do you think the Ducks score over the next four games? I'd, I'd have to think because I don't have any confidence in St. Louis's backup. So I think that I think that game you're gonna you're gonna pick up a few in that one. Uh, but you're a big Jordan Binnington fan. I, really I, I'm not it? a Jordan Binnington fan, but I, I am a fan of the way St. Louis <laughs> plays in front of Jordan Binnington. So uh, you're saying total goals over the entire week here? Yeah, so the two Arizona games and the two St. Louis games. I'm going to go with 
I'm going to go with nine. I was going to go with seven, but I'll give it a little bit of upside here. I'll go with nine. I'm going to go with five. How many points? How many points do they pick up, Craig? Uh, eight possible points that they could pick up. How many do you think they walk away with here? I think they get four points on two overtimes. Two overtimes? I think okay. we're. I think you're looking at one win, one straight up loss, and two overtime losses. One one. So one 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 and two across the next. Four. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know what? I, I I'll take that. I was gonna say I, I'll say they go. I think they go one two and one. They pick up uh, three points of a possible eight. I I think. They might squeak out a point in one of the St. Louis games, pick up a win in one of the Arizona games, but uh, ultimately I think they drop some close ones in regulation in the other two against Arizona and St. Louis. But either way, we will be there after each of the games, except <laughs> except for the weekend game. Uh, since it's a back-to-back, we won't be live on Saturday night after the Blues game. We'll be live on Sunday to cover both of the games because a back-to-back post-game show on Saturday and Sunday would be rough. So we'll have three shows for the upcoming week here. I'll close it with this. We are doing a little bit of uh, a giveaway right now. If you guys do want to head to Apple Podcasts, if you enjoy the show and want to hit us with a review, we'll be picking one of uh, one of our favorite reviews over the next uh, little bit here and giving away a Forever Mighty uh, prize pack to one of... Uh, one of our friendly and kind Apple podcast reviewers. So, you know, we always love the feedback. Uh, you know, it helps the show. It helps the show get out there. So if you guys do want to go drop us a review on Apple podcast, we appreciate that. And uh, it is kind of part of the giveaway we're doing right now. So anyway, with that, we'll wrap the show. Uh, you'll see one of the four of us on uh, on Tuesday, whether it be <laughs> me or Steven or Pat and Jay. Uh, and we look forward to talking to you guys then. Thanks yeah. for coming out, guys. Later, everybody. At CVS Health Hub, you can see a provider, fill a prescription, and grab what you need all in one trip, even on evenings and weekends. That's healthier made easier. Visit a CVS Health Hub today. Services vary by location. See cvs.com slash health hub for details.